right. Good morning, uh, Grace Life. It's good to see many of you made it here today. We'll be uh, in Hebrews. I'm uh, glad that Phil and Mike have trusted me with this time with you and um, excited to be here. So it's interesting as we come to the end of a, an old year and the start of a new year, a lot of times for most people, I would think, they have thoughts of the past. You know, they look over the year, things that they've accomplished, things they wish they had done better. Maybe they think of loved ones they've lost, uh, brings that kind of to their mind. And then also we have this kind of pivotal time where we go into the new year, and naturally we think about the hopes maybe of a, of a new year, like what could be, what's to come. And ultimately we find ourselves by God's providence today discussing the new covenant. I didn't plan that. It wasn't some kind of gimmicky thing, talk about the new year, talk about the new covenant. Um, but in God's providence, it's where we're at in the book of Hebrews. And ultimately, it's a good reminder for us as Christians that, you know, we really don't need a ginned up hope to be excited about what's to come because we have that hope built up for us in Christ our King and in the covenant that he brings, the new covenant. And so as we're in Hebrews 8, we're kind of doing what we've always done here and just kind of taking a text of scripture and kind of exegeting it, going through it just kind of slowly. We're picking up in the middle of an argument. So I have some recap I have to do because it has been a little bit of time since I've been with you. And so because of that, we're in the middle of an argument. And it's really the prolonged argument of the entire book of Hebrews is that Jesus Christ is greater than all other things, all worldly hopes, all worldly wisdom, all other systems, especially Judaism. We've looked at some tremendous themes so far, and I want to remind you of some of those since I'll be referencing them throughout our time today. We discussed the doctrine of typology, right? Typology is where we see uh, an instance or a person in the Old Testament who prefigured and prophetically pointed to something in the life of Jesus Christ. We looked at the typological prophet Moses in the book of Hebrews and how he pointed to the prophecies brought by Christ. We looked at the typological king David and how he pointed to the ultimate king Jesus Christ. And recently we've looked at the typological priests Melchizedek and the Levitical order and how those ultimately find their culmination and fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Another important aspect we've looked at that will come up again today is the fact that our priest, our high priest, our mediator is a dual mediator. Hopefully you remember that, that this, the second person of the Godhead who assumed a human nature in the incarnation, the hypostatic union, he mediates for us according to both natures. Oftentimes when we say Jesus Christ, a lot of people think of that as his middle name or something. No, it is a reference to his person. It is a title for his person. And, Christ, and, and Mike gave us kind of a, a master class on Christology over the last few weeks. And so you'll find some of that we'll pick up here today as well. And then finally, just as a recap, one of the other aspects that we need to kind of have in our mind is the distinction between kinds of covenants in the Bible. We have bilateral covenants 
and we have unilateral covenants. And so the old covenant was a bilateral covenant. Well, what do I mean by that? Well, a bilateral covenant means that there are two parties that both have respective responsibilities, and based on the actions of those two parties, we find the fulfillment of that kind of a covenant. So in the old covenant, for example, God promised blessings, temporal blessings, and curses based on the actions of the people. Blessings for obedience, curses for disobedience, right? And so that kind of a bilateral covenant is contingent on the working of a covenant keeper. On the other hand, we have what is called a unilateral covenant. And this is where both the promises and the keeping of the covenant are done by one. And we'll see that today. We've also looked at some other vital elements related to the new covenant and our communion, our relationship with God. Jesus Christ as a priest is a better minister and he brings with him a better covenant. That's all of chapter 8 that we've been looking at. And those two twin truths are important. They're vital because they represent to us how we understand our relationship to the Lord. His priesthood is important. It's vital. It's essential. It's organically linked to everything we're going to look at today. A priest ministers a covenant. If he doesn't offer sacrifices, if he doesn't offer efficacious sacrifices, there is no forgiveness of sins. We have no clue if we're right with God, but none of that even matters. Jesus could have come and he could have died. But if he wasn't a covenant head, it would have been of no benefit to anyone else. But because God made a covenant that this one would stand in the place of many, we see the connection between priesthood and covenant union with our Lord. In order to make that point, that's the point he's making, is that the new covenant far exceeds and is far better than the old covenant. And we can't lose sight of that today. I'll be talking a lot about the new covenant, but we can't lose sight of the argument of the text, which is it's better than the old covenant. And he appeals to the authority of God's word in Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34. That's the quote we'll be looking at in Hebrews 8. It's almost a verbatim quote. Hebrews 8, we'll be looking at 10 to 13 today. But before we get there, what do we know about Jeremiah? He was born, actually, into a priestly family. His father may have been a high priest under Josiah. God set this son of a priest apart to be a prophet before he was ever born. As he grew and the time of his ministry comes, the people know him to be a compassionate man. He's been given, given kind of the title, the weeping prophet. He proclaimed the gospel for 40 years in the darkest, most perverted times in the nation of Judah. And yet, although he was a beacon of faithfulness in a land of lawlessness, his own people received him not. They regarded him as a traitor because he was pronouncing covenant curses upon the kingdom. Reminds you of anybody else? His life was one of perpetual danger. He was beat numerous times, exiled from the people, put into prison, shut up and shut out. Yet he was the promised prophet 
on behalf of God. He's secluded. He's called to warn people of a coming judgment from the hand of God so they can repent and turn from their evil ways. But no one can hear him, spiritually or physically. They can't give him an ear. They pay no attention to him. He's secluded. He's cut off. And that breaks his heart. Jeremiah means the Lord throws. He was thrown by God into the den of hostility. And eventually the people of Israel would likewise be thrown into exile for their covenant curses and breaking the the Lord's law. He was commanded by God to never take a wife to never father any children because his life would typify the end of life for the people of Judah. Remember, the people had violated God's covenant law and with the old covenant brought covenant curses. Those negative consequences had been seen by the southern two tribes in Judah because a hundred years before Jeremiah was ever even born, the northern tribe paid the consequence of covenant curses by being carried off into slavery and you think that would have been a wake-up call for judah but it wasn't i mean how many prophets did god have to send to warn them of the coming danger jeremiah chapter 11 he is told just like we see in isaiah chapter 6 to go through all the country through all the towns to warn them to walk the streets, to trod the highways and byways, alone, cast off, hated by his own countrymen. We find in Jeremiah the dark days known as Jacob's trouble. The trouble of Jacob is on the horizon, you see, because spiritual harlotry, adultery, whoredom was the stock and trade of Judah. They were no better than Israel. And so you see, under the old administration, people could never keep covenant communion with God. It was always going to end in trouble for them. The old covenant couldn't give them life or ability to obey. And in the midst of that dark time, seemingly dire, God gives a promise of a second covenant, the new covenant the better covenant, the superior covenant. Because this covenant gives God's people all that they need from the hand of God himself. And those wonderful promises are recounted for us in Hebrews chapter 8. Let me give you my outline and we'll read the text. We're going to be looking at the four promises of the new covenant. First, regeneration. That's at the beginning of verse 10. Second, adoption. That's also in verse 10. Third, illumination, verse 11. And then fourth, forgiveness, verse 12. And I'll repeat that throughout our time. But let me read the entire context of this argument for you. Hebrews 8, and I'll read 7 to 13. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion sought for a second. For finding fault with them... He says, Behold, days are coming, says the Lord, for I will effect a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers on the day when they took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and as I did not care for them, says the Lord. 
For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds. I will write them on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach everyone to follow to his fellow citizen. For everyone to his brother say, know the Lord, for all will know me from the greatest to the least of them. For I will be merciful to their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. And when he said a new covenant, he made the first obsolete. And whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. Let's look at that a little more closely. In verse 10, the first promise that we see of the new covenant is that he will put, their law, put his law into their minds and into their hearts. Friends, this entails the doctrine of regeneration through and through. New birth. The old covenant law was not able to secure faithfulness and therefore covenant blessing of God's covenant bride. As a bilateral covenant, they could never live up to their end of the bargain. But the new covenant is able to secure the faithfulness of God's covenant bride. The old covenant was faulty in that it gave us a holy law, but it didn't make us a holy people. It told us what to do. It told us the requirements of how to be right with God, but it didn't conform our hearts to being right with God. In fact, it never could. Only the Holy Spirit, graciously given us in the new birth in Christ, can cause us to be born again and walk in godliness. We see this in Romans 8, 3 to 4. It says, For what the law, talking about the first covenant, could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Only Christ could keep the righteous requirements of the law and that's what the whole New Testament tells us he did. He keeps the natural commands of being right with God in his active law obedience of his entire life. And he also kept the penal demands that were owed to each one of us by his horrific and bloody death on the cross. But only God and only by the work of the Holy Spirit can that be applied to our hearts and give us newness of life. The old covenant commanded law, but it wrote it on tablets of stone. The Old Covenant promised the law, but not the power to keep it. The New Covenant commands law as well, but it promises to write it on our hearts. And the New Covenant promised the keeping of the law through our mediator, Jesus Christ. (laughs) See so much about the comparison between the Old and New Covenant? The Old Covenant, it was so preoccupied with externals, wasn't it? It was concerned with diet, with clothing, with external sacrifices, uh, external everything. 
material, tangible, a physical temple in one location where you actually had to travel to it every year to have real communion with God. You had to go on pilgrimage, set everything aside every year to go for the Day of Atonement. It was localized. It was physical in so much of its typological substance. In regeneration, the new covenant works inwardly to change the heart, giving us vibrant life. And what we come to find out in the post-Pentecost work of God, we see the normative indwelling of the work of the Spirit on top of that regenerative work. By the new nature, the indwelling, we're, we're motivated not just by externals, but by a new heart. We love, we long for, we are satisfied most when we are satisfied in Him. While certainly the Holy Spirit saved Old Testament saints by regeneration, proceeding and causing faith in the Christ, nevertheless, He didn't take up normative residence in them, as we see He does now. The Old Covenant did not aid in sanctification internally, merely externally. So while the Old Testament saints were saved proleptically by the New Covenant, they didn't have its power in sanctification. The parallel we see for this text is Ezekiel eleven nineteen as well. It says, I will give them a new heart and put a new spirit within them. I will take the heart of stone out of their flesh and give them a heart of flesh. One thing I want you to catch is that the spirit of regeneration is not available through the Old Covenant. Old Testament saints were saved not by the Old Covenant, but by virtue of the promise of the New Covenant, which covers them retroactively, and they look forward to it proleptically, but the Old Covenant couldn't save them. It didn't fix the heart. It was written on stone. They need a heart of flesh. They had to have it written on parchments, on their doorways, on their wrists, on their foreheads because they didn't have the life that's given after the new covenant is inaugurated in the same way. And we learn one lesson from all that when you read through the Old Testament. You see the continual disobedience of the people of Israel. And it's that this, memorizing something doesn't guarantee any obedience at all. The Old Covenant did a lot of things for them externally and gave them temporal blessings. If you want to live eternally, you can't buy the provisions of the Old Covenant. You need, just as much as they needed, and those who were actually saved were, saved and received the work of the New Covenant. This is the internalization of the Christian religion. It's the new governing principle by virtue of the new birth, by regeneration and faith. We have a desire, a, a power, a joy, a compulsion to delight in obedience to our Lord. But just external laws don't address the heart. Their sphere is bound to the external. That's what law does in the old economy. It puts guardrails on behavior, but it doesn't give power to change the heart. You know, a law without obedience results in nothing but guilt. 
On the other hand, the internal work of the Holy Spirit, the law of Christ, it's not antinomianism, right? It's internalized religion. We are still obligated to love God with all of our hearts, with all of our souls, with all of our minds, all of our strength, to love our neighbors as ourselves. Christ says the whole of the law. But by the works of the Spirit, on the basis of the work of Christ, we've actually done these things by Him. And now we joyfully and vibrantly have a life to live that loves to obey God. Hebrews 7.12 told us, when there is a change of priest, there is a change of law, of the covenant. So the promise of the new covenant with our new priestly head is that the heart transplant would take place on virtue of him. The unilateral work of God, he promises to give us a new heart. I mean, what a glorious promise God gives us in that covenant in Jeremiah 31. Promising a profound transformation. If we look at the historical context of Israel's tribulations, it stems from their failure to embrace so many principles that are given to them throughout God's word, especially by Jeremiah in the prophetic era. Their hearts were unyielding. They were rebellious. They were devoid of warmth towards God. And then they have unforgiven sin. It casts a shadow upon them, leading to divine judgment. And friends, if we're honest with ourselves in a parallel manner, we before conversion, before regeneration, mirrored that condition. Cold, resistant to God, his word and his spirit. Yet in his mercy, God in his sovereignty and power presented the gospel of Jesus Christ ushering in new life and faith. And so the word of God that was once a distant text becomes living, cherished, radiating with newfound understanding of everything. The new covenant is better as the new creation, regeneration is better than what you could get in the old. So the, the new creation, regeneration, is better than the old creation. If you look at our text, we get a couple indicators here. Hebrews 8, verse 7. Let me just show you a few of these. For if the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion sought for a second. I mean, the Old Testament saints knew all along that there has to be another way. They were searching for that other way the whole time, knowing it was coming, waiting for it to come. In verse 8, the new covenant will be given in coming days. In our text, verse 10, the new covenant is coming after those days. You see, in the old creation, under the old covenant, God's people were scattered, subject to sin, suffering, rebellion. They were a flawed community, failing, failing in obedience and not a blessing to the nations with which they were intended to be. But yet the Holy Spirit's influence we see even there. It's limited in the fact that it is through typological prophets, typological priests, typological sacrifices, and all within the confines of a typological tabernacle and temple. Yet, a promised restoration is foretold for latter days. A spirit-anointed Messiah who will save, who will bring God's kingdom, suffer for sin, crush God's enemies, usher in the new creation. We see Jesus fulfills so much of that in his first coming. We look forward to a lot of that in his second. His total conquer of Satan's sin and death as we saw it in his sacrificial work on the cross. 
But all that reminds us of so many truths we see throughout the New Testament. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Behold, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation, a new creature. Colossians 1, 13. You have been delivered from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved Son. Now let's just take a moment to apply this truth. So here comes the question for us. If the new creation, the new covenant, which is what we have experienced by being regenerated, why do we still struggle with sin? Why do we suffer? Why do we all still die? If the new creation has come, then why does the church still have folks who commit apostasy, who are excommunicated, who struggle with all sorts of weaknesses and sins? Why aren't things better among God's people now? It is true that Christ inaugurated the new covenant. But friends, we are still waiting for him to return and consummate it. Although the new creation, the new covenant has begun, there's a tension that lies in waiting for Christ's coming to consummate it for us. While it's true, we are seated in the heavenly places, experiencing heavenly blessings beyond compare even right now. There is still yet a fuller, greater aspect of those promises that we will long for, we should long for, and we look forward to in Christ's return. So in the meantime, believers, we have to navigate all sorts of earthly struggles, recognizing all the while that our citizenship is in another kingdom. We live as pilgrims in the wilderness of our lives. But we don't lose hope because of the hope of the new covenant. The culmination of the new creation in Christ's return. Now, there's more we could say there, but let's move on to the second promise. The second promise is adoption. Adoption. It's the promise of an exclusive relationship with God that we are his children. And there's a lot that comes with being a child of God. Look at the end of verse 10. I'll just focus on these few words. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. There are really no more comforting words in all the Bible than that. A promise from the mouth of God. When he says, I will be their God, he isn't saying he isn't currently God over everything else. He's still God even over the pagan nations of the earth. He's the same God before creation as he is after creation. He is wholly unaffected by the world itself. God is still and always will be the same God he has ever been. So what is this saying? It's stressing something profound. The friendship, the glories of adoption. We are his in a unique way, a treasure as his children. He will be a heavenly father to us, a shepherd, a good shepherd, friend closer than a brother, a provider because the cattle on a thousand hills are his. His name is El Shaddai, our comforter. He is our redeemer, the creator of heaven and earth. All that God is, he is for us. 
And so we have the wonderful doctrine of divine simplicity put on marvelous display here once again. What is that? Well, I mean that God is not made up of parts. All that God is, is for us. Not a part of God, all of God. He is pure, unmixed, undivided, never diffused and never diminished. All that God is, he is to us, his people. What do I mean by that? Well, I mean in God's love, in God's mercy, in God's wisdom. He is all that all the time to you, no matter where you are. He is not more loving to you here and now when you're obedient and when you're at church than he is when you're struggling at home by yourself. He is the self-same God in both of those circumstances. And he is our heavenly father. And as an adopted son of the most high, he is with us in a unique way. And because of the new covenant, we have better access to him. And I want to highlight that for you. Under the old covenant, the high priest could only enter the Holy of Holies once a year. We'll see this repeated in chapter 9 of the book of Hebrews, verse 6. And I'll read that. What we find is that there's a limitation. And there's a, a temporal limitation and there's actually a personal limitation. It's limited to one person at one time. Let me read it. Now when these things have been so prepared, speaking about the Old Testament dispensation, now when these things have been so prepared, the priests are continually entering the outer tabernacle, outer tabernacle, performing the divine worship. But into the second, only the high priest, limited to one person, once a year, limited to one time. Not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the sins of the people committed in ignorance. And the Holy Spirit is signifying this, that the way into the holy place has not yet been disclosed while the outer tabernacle is still standing. Now just stop there for a moment. And think about this through the lens of Old Testament eyes. Israel is called the children of God, Exodus 4, verse 22. But they couldn't access their father. Think about how sad that would be. For someone who just longs to be in the presence of their father and to never have immediate access to him. And to realize that really the inner sanctum, the place where God, his manifest presence is, is totally cut off to you. I mean, there was access, but it was by proxy. Yeah, so there was access once a year by a high priest bringing in the blood of an animal. And while it's so gracious for God to provide any access at all to sinful people, standing on the outside looking in, the old covenant believers had to be weeping, saying, there's still this barrier between me and my father. I can't go into the inner reality and be unified to him. And it was deliberately set up that way by the Holy Spirit to show that the fullness had not yet come. Well, friends, in the new covenant, we enjoy today far better access to our father. Now, I mean, there is no comparison to the access that we have now compared to the access they had then. The contrast is stunning. It's infinitely stunning. Jesus Christ serves in reality, not by symbols. 
Hebrews 9 again, 11 and 12. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of bulls and goats, but through his own blood, he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. Christ has entered into the holy throne in heaven for us. He's carried us into the presence of our Father. And where he is, there we shall be also. In comparison, the high priests of Israel, they had stones on the outer vestment, right, that represent the 12 tribes inscribed on it. And they would take that in a representative way into the inner sanctum. Christ, by contrast, carries us with our names written on his hands, as it were, written in his blood. And he has entered there taking us with him, he took his humanity to heaven. So united with Christ, he's carried us into the inner place where we have immediate, full, bold access to our Father at all times without any need for further sacrifices. No other human priest could do this. For those of you who are still confused by Catholic false teaching, take note. Ephesians 3.11 just see a statement about this access. This was in accordance with the eternal purpose, which has carried out in the Lord Jesus Christ, our Lord, Jesus Christ, our Lord, in whom we have boldness and confident access through faith in him. Friends, you can go immediately into the presence of God in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as Christians, we are immediately received, immediately welcomed, When we go to God in prayer, we have immediate access. By Christ's shed blood, we have access. And ultimately, we have a privilege of being children of God. We have a right to be there. That's the wonder of the gift of the new covenant that we have in Christ. He is the heir of all things. We saw that in Hebrews 1, verse 3. And guess what? He isn't ashamed to call us his brothers. And so by virtue of that, we are heirs of all things because Christ is our priest. His work is finished and the Father has accepted that work. There are no barriers for us whatsoever to access God. If you are in Christ, you have full, complete, immediate, ongoing, confident, bold access to God in the throne room of heaven. I want to tell you that's a whole lot better than what they had to do in the old economy. It's a whole lot better. That's the reality, not the shadow. The new covenant provides better access to God our Father. The ongoing presence of Jesus Christ at the right hand of God guarantees that we have that access. We can no more lose our access to God as Christians than someone could kick Christ out of heaven. And that's remarkable for us to remember. That's how much better the new covenant is to the old. And I just want to pause for a moment. You're probably like me and you probably take these things for granted from time to time. We forget to, sometimes forget the the wonder and the magnificence of these truths under the weight of just kind of the daily grind, the adversity of life, the trials and uncertainties of life. We lose sight of these things. Well, 
One of the reasons God established communion for the church is to remember these things, to give us an opportunity as a congregation to reorient our thinking about these priorities in life and privileges we have in the marvelous work of Christ. It's unspeakable how great this is. This was withheld from the sight of the Old Testament nation of Israel. And now here you and I, we're dwelling, we're living in luxury. But yet we oftentimes just kind of lose sight of that. The wonders of what Christ has done for us. This is the great gift that Christ has given us. Again, better access, a new heart, with Christ our priest rather than just some mere flunky human, if I can put it that way. Let me tell you one more thing about the intimacy of this adoption. It starts off with, we will be children of God, but there's another part to us. That we belong to him, he belongs to us. He's with us in all of his perfections. His entire essence is for us, as I mentioned before. And here's something really important. Because he is timeless, he's eternal, there's no succession of moments in the life of God, he has all of our lives in perfect intimacy with us at all times. I just want you to think about that. How, how many of you here have children? If not, then you are a child and you have a father. You can think and remember those times when you have a newborn child who's totally dependent on you for all their life and sustenance. And there's a preciousness in that. All their needs have to be given by you. And then they grow up and they become adolescents. And you still got them in your house, but you don't have them as dependent on you as they once were, right? So you lose the preciousness of that intimacy as they grow a little older and a little further from you. You still get to speak into their life. I mean, they're still around, but there's going to come a day when they leave your house, right? And they go out and they start their own families and your communication will be less and your influence will be less. And you kind of wish you still had those precious times in the past. And they're growing and they're maturing all the while becoming totally new people as they're maturing in life. And you kind of lose that relationship, right? You kind of think about that. Well, with God, he has all of our lives at once. The whole gamut of it all he has at once in the eternal now of God. And in that way, in a very unique way, again, I'm totally falling short on how we can communicate this. I am is with us and we are with him. Emmanuel, God with us. He says, I will be their God. They will be my people. We are his people. We belong to him. We are his, his inheritance, the apple of his eye. Spurgeon once said this, people have their treasures, their pearls, their jewels, their money, their rubies, their diamonds, and these are their particular store. Now, all people in the covenant are in the particular store of God. He values them above all things else besides. In fact, he keeps the world spinning for them. The world is but a scaffold for the church. He will send creation packing when once it is done with the saints. Yea, the sun and the moon and the stars may pass away like worn out rags when once he has gathered together his elect and folded them safely within the walls of heaven. We belong to him like his precious store. And we saw that last time. The old covenant, the law, it couldn't make us sons, could it? It couldn't make us sons. It could tell us what to do, 
but it couldn't bring us into the family of God. It made us slaves. It bound us to obedience, but it never promised nor provided sonship. So in the new covenant, God makes a promise that God would keep, promises to bless us, that we could dwell with him, that he would dwell with us, to be our God, we his people, and ultimately his children. God promised that to people in the Old Testament. But it was by virtue of the new covenant. He promised that to Abraham in Genesis 17. He promised that to Israel in Exodus 6 and Leviticus 26. He promised that to David's son in 2 Samuel 7, 13 and 14. And through Jeremiah and Ezekiel, we see that promise being made. So when God brings his people out of Egypt, so to speak, it's not as a master caring for a servant or a manager caring for his employees, but as a tender father caring for his precious son. These are rich promises that belong to us. Promise three, we'll do these a little quicker. We've seen the promise of regeneration, the promise of adoption. Now third, the promise of illumination. It's in Hebrews 8, verse 11. It says, and they shall not teach one another his fellow citizen and everyone his brother saying, know the Lord, but all will know me from the least to the greatest of them. Remember the contrast between the old and the new here again. Remember how many people in the nation of Israel knew things about God, but were still far off from him. Circumcision was the sign of the old covenant, but it didn't save a single soul. Judas was circumcised. He bore the mark of the covenant community on his body, but he was never born again. He was the son of perdition from the beginning. King Ahab, Caiaphas, the sons of Eli, of whom God promised no atonement would ever be made, 1 Samuel 3.14. There goes the perverted provisionist Arminian view of the atonement for you seminary students. He didn't die for everyone because the sons of Eli can't have atonement made for them. Under the old covenant, it guaranteed nothing lasting. Circumcision, the national covenant, doesn't secure personal fellowship with God. They could recite the Ten Commandments. They knew their history inside and out in ways that would put all of us to shame. But they didn't actually know God. So the new covenant is not merely about knowledge gained by ways of books. What kind of knowledge is this? What, what are we talking about here? It's a kind of intimate knowledge in the way that Adam knew his wife. Personal intimacy. Matthew 7, we see where Jesus divides the sheep from the goats. We see Jesus utter those solemn words, depart from me for I never knew you. It's not that Jesus doesn't know who these people are. He's omniscient God. He knows all things. It's that they weren't on intimate terms. And so consider the promise we're given here. We are told that God will put his law in our heart in a way that we know him. Psalm 19, 7 to 8, the law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The command of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. We can see and know God. We're promised restored soul making wise the simple, enlightening the eyes, all by the implanting of the sovereign work of God in our hearts. And that's what we see in the Psalms throughout. Where's this at? Psalm 37, 31. The law of his God is in his heart. 
Psalm 40, verse 8. I delight to do your will, O my God, for your law is within my heart. So what is our text saying? It says they don't need to teach each other saying, know the Lord. What does this mean? It means that we don't have to go around among each other and do personal evangelism because they're already redeemed. It doesn't mean, let me tell you what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that there will be no teachers in the New Covenant Church. We clearly have teachers in the New Covenant Church. In fact, we're given them by Christ himself, Ephesians 4, 7 to 11, to help us grow in maturity. Yet there's a way in which we don't need a teacher. We don't need the teachers in the forms of the types and shadows of the Old Covenant. Prophets, priests, kings, tabernacles, temples, external washings, sacrifices. We no longer need all of those because the Lord himself has come as our teacher. He came as the incarnate son, revealing the Father. Matthew eleven twenty seven. 27. All these things have been handed over by me, by, or to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. See that connection there between knowledge and revelation right seeing and he sent the holy spirit who teaches us internally in a more powerful manner the word proclaimed the holy spirit brings forth upon us faith in christ he teaches us internally our resident truth teacher we see this promise in isaiah 54 13 all your sons will be taught of the lord and the well-being of your sons will be great that's quoted again in john 6 45 and the prophets write, and they shall all be taught of God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me, says Christ. Notice what our text says next, 8.11. It says, for they shall know me from the least of them to the greatest. They shall know the Lord because the Father is the teacher of them by the Spirit about Christ, drawing them to Christ. And Christ teaches them from the Father, from the Spirit, or through the Spirit. If we're in Christ, we know God. Now, this doesn't mean that everyone who darkens the door of a church or everybody who makes a profession of faith without exception is born again. We've seen that warning time and time again, haven't we? Remember Hebrews chapter 6? We're told in 1 John 2, 19 that among us there are many who are not of us. There are lots of warnings like this among the covenant community in the New Testament. We're told that they'll be weeded out in the end, Matthew 13, Perhaps you recall some of those warnings in this very book. We could look at a lot of them, but just even one, Hebrews 3, verse 1 and verse 12, he calls them brethren. And he says, even holy brethren. And he warns them, take heed, lest one of you have an evil, unbelieving heart. So what's this all about? It's about people who are authentically united to Christ and they truly know him. It's not just knowing facts about God. It's knowing God in an intimate and personal way. Now, don't take this to mean that you've ceased in your struggle and in your striving to know new things about God. Friends, there isn't one of us in this entire room that that could be true about, that you've, just, you've learned everything there is to know about God. I don't care who you are. I don't care how many degrees you have on the wall. I don't care how many books you read a year. I don't care how many, I don't know, podcasts or debates you do. You need to know more about God. We have to have that mindset. We are theological pilgrims on a pilgrimage and again, a desolate wasteland looking for a city whose builder is God on our way to a heavenly home. Friends, we're going to learn a lot more about him along the way. 
So this text isn't telling us you don't need to learn new truths about God. It's saying our saving knowledge, our relationship with God is personal. It's not through a community. It's not through your parents. It's personal. And maybe there are some of you here who think you're too old to know God in this intimate and personal way. Well, I'm here to dissuade you of that delusion. Maybe some of you have been tricked into believing, well, you're too insignificant to know God like this, right? I mean, you're not Pastor John or the elders. They, they know him in a more personal way than you. Friends, that's just not true of his children. The new covenant is for old people. It's for young people. It's for unimportant people. Now maybe, just maybe, you're sitting here with your heart in your lap this morning and you think, the personal, intimate relationship with God isn't for someone who's a sinner like you. I'm sure some of you are thinking that. I'm too messed up. I can't hold down a job. I can't even hold my tongue. I can't balance my checkbook. Friends, the new covenant is especially for people like you. It's the only thing that can heal you and make you whole. Personal intimacy with the living God who gives light to your blind eyes, illuminating and restoring your soul. Now, fourth promise. We'll do this quicker. Full forgiveness. Full forgiveness. Look with me at verse 12. For I will be merciful to their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. I will never remember their sins ever again. Verse 12 starts with a little word that we kind of gloss over. For. The whole world lays in the balance of that one word, for. The difference between the bliss of heaven and the horrors of hell hinges on that one word, for. It tells us all the prior promises are realized on account of what comes, forgiveness. This one ultimate promise gives us all the other benefits of heaven. Because of the death of Jesus, God never calls our sin to attention ever again. These things are foretold in, Je in Jeremiah, ratified in Christ. Let me clarify one more thing in case there's some confusion. This doesn't mean that the Old Testament saints were not forgiven of their sins, nor does it suggest that God withheld mercy from them. The key distinction lies in the fact that their atonement was not achieved through the old specific administration of sacrifices in the Old Testament. The atonement for our sins and their sins was under a totally different administration, the new covenant. In the old covenant, it pointed to that in symbolic and shadowy ways. Christ achieves it as the fulfillment of those things. So it's not that the work of the old or the new covenant or the work of Christ was absent or ineffective while the old administration was in place. Salvation was always accomplished through Christ's blood in the new covenant, which was typified beforehand through those Old Testament types and shadows. So why are the promises of the new covenant superior to those of the old? Well, the new covenant is the administration of God's saving work that is not symbolic or shadowy. The old covenant saints had access to God and his blessings through faith in the Spirit but they didn't witness the physical arrival of Christ or the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Their experience was 
different. It was characterized by symbols and shadows. We possess the fullness of it. Hebrews 11 informs us of that fact, in case you're confused. Old Testament saints had the substance of Christ through faith. Hebrews 11, verse 1, the substance of things not seen, the assurance of things hoped for or hoped not seen. They didn't witness the incarnate work of the Lord. While the historical fulfillment of Christ's coming was, was expected by them, it was promised, they still received all the blessings through faith. Now let's get back to what this means again real quick. I will remember their sins no more. It reminds me of Micah 7, 18 and 19. It's one of those texts I like, parallels this. Who is a God like you? who pardons iniquity and passes over the rebellious acts of the remnant of his possession. He doesn't retain his anger forever because he delights in unchanging love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. Yes, he will cast all of our sins into the depths of the sea. Christianity is not a religion for perfect people. It's for people who are sick, who have failed, and who need their sins forgiven. The old covenant can't forgive sins. It just covered over them with a gloss of blood. It never could clean to the uttermost. In fact, if we go back to Hebrews 8, 13, it says, by calling this covenant new, he has made the first one obsolete. Friends, it was obsolete at least 600 years before Jesus was born, when Jeremiah prophesied those words. It was obsolete long before Christ came. And we are told it will soon disappear. Now, what does the term disappear here mean? It isn't like what you think. When we think of disappear, we think of something like fading away, something kind of disappearing. It's kind of going to the background. Uh, It's going out of sight, but it's still kind of there. No, this is a term that means destruction, annihilation, done away with in its entirety. It's over. It's not coming back. And that's what he's telling his people here who are stuck in this middle spot to go back to Judaism, to go back to the old covenant. He's telling them when the new comes, the old dies. It's of no service to the people of God when the new comes. And friends, it did die. When in Jesus' death, he put to death, death itself, shown to us by the veil being torn in two, it was all over. This is the covenant God makes with sinners. He cuts the new covenant in his own blood on the cross. We see this text in Jeremiah 31. It's quoted one more time. We read it this morning in Hebrews 10, 16 to 17. I want to read it again and point out a few things. He says this, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws upon their heart and on their minds. I will write them. Exact same. He says, And their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Look at the inspired commentary in verse 18. Now where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer any offering for sin. You cannot go back to the old covenant sin offerings. You ever wonder why the New Testament church doesn't have an altar? An altar symbolizes sacrifice. And a genuine church doesn't need an altar because the sacrifice has already been made. Hebrews 9.26 tells us that he cannot suffer often. 1 Peter 3.18, For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having put to death in the flesh, but made us alive in the Spirit. Friends, no sacrifice for sins 
remains. It was a one-time thing, Hebrews 6.10. For the death that he died, he died once for all. Friends, for all time. And there's something inescapable about those texts. There's only one atonement, only one sacrifice. And so therefore, there is no longer an altar for sacrifice in a true church. Just as there is only one sacrifice, there is only one mediator, 1 Timothy 2.5, for there is one God and one mediator between God and man, men, the man, Christ Jesus. So we don't have an altar. We have a table of remembrance. We acknowledge Christ's completed work, a once-for-all-time sacrifice at Calvary. Now, let's apply these before we wrap up. If you can hear these truths and remain unmoved, it's essential that you examine your heart. Regardless of your self-perception or religious experiences, a true Christian with a new heart from the new birth because of the new covenant resonates with love for these things. I'm not saying that to condemn you or to dishearten you, friends. The singular sacrifice of Christ 2,000 years ago surpasses the sacrifice of millions of animals. Even if bulls, goats, lambs were sacrificed continually throughout all eternity, the one sacrifice of Christ would still be infinitely greater. That's the magnitude of the new covenant. Hebrews 10.4, it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. That's always been true. That didn't just become true when Jesus died. It was true before he was ever incarnate. Remember the old hymn, What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. That means that Abraham's sins, Moses' sins, Aaron's sins, Joshua's sins, David's sins were not forgiven by animal sacrifices. They're forgiven by the blood of Jesus. And the author of Hebrews is saying that this is the new covenant. It's been inaugurated and you can't return to the old shadows. Now, let's explore something else here, what the author of Hebrews reveals about the new covenant. In this fresh covenant, God inscribes his laws on our hearts through his spirit, a new heart, personal intimacy, illumination, forgiveness. That's what we've seen. What then is God's promise for you? It is for you to be his possession and for him to be yours. It is for you to be his inheritance and for him to be yours. The entire grand design of redemption resolves around that mutual belongingness. He being ours, us being his, I will be your God, you will be my people. It's actualized through a superior minister and a more profound covenant promise and blessing. We've got to keep this in comparison with the old covenant sacrifices. And it could sacrifice animals, but it doesn't pay a ransom price. Reflect on what we have in Christ. We possess actual price paid. His sinless nature allowed him to present a flawless human sacrifice capable of paying the penalty owed to sinful men. And as our dual mediator, the God-man, yet one person, the Son, our Redeemer, Jesus Christ, by his blood, by his human death, backed by the integrity of his deity, he guarantees an infinite value, friends. And because this person is the one who performs atonement, it has infinite value. It is not limited to time and place. It can 
go before and it can go after. We are covered by the same blood of Jesus from 2,000 years ago as it was true of the people of that very day. I mean, think about the profoundness of Christ's sacrifice. Think of what kind of blasphemy it is to even suggest that bulls, lambs, and goats could ever achieve something that grand. And it amazes me that so many times even Christians want to go back to the old covenant system. But we refrain from those practices, right? Because Christ has surpassed them, rendering them unnecessary. The question we have to ask ourselves is, is Christ your hope? Is he the way, the truth, the life to you? To the extent that you forsake all reliance on your own righteousness and all other paths to God. The idea of any alternate way of being right with God, like they were tempted with in the book of Hebrews, should be repulsive to you. Because you understand that Christ is the sole way to the Father. So friends, are you placing your faith in him? He is the exclusive way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through him. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you today. We thank you for this wonderful reminder we have as we venture into the new year. Lord, may we cherish these things anew. May you place them with more vibrantness in our minds. May you help us not to forsake them and neglect them. May you help us just to cherish our time together this Lord's Day, that you'd be worshiped and exalted above all things in all of our life, even as we leave here. In the name of Christ, our high priest, who brings us a far greater covenant, we pray. Amen. We hope you enjoyed this message from our guest speaker. For more information about the ministry of the Grace Life Pulpit, visit at www.thegracelifepulpit.com. Please note, law prohibits the unauthorized copying or distributing of this audio file. Requests for permission to copy or distribute are made in writing to the Grace Life Pulpit. Copyright by the Grace Life Pulpit. All rights reserved.